And so often that is what happens in our lives. God uses hardship to purify us, to draw us near, to help us to see our need of him, our need to depend upon him. He brings us into situations where we have no resources to, to handle on our own, and so we can't help but call on him ourselves. We've been in a series in Life of Joseph called God at Work When We Can't See Him. And we've been saying throughout this series that we follow an invisible God. We've been called to walk by faith. And yet God gives us principles and patterns of his working so that we can make sense of his working in our lives when life otherwise wouldn't make sense. Uh, this morning, we're talking about uh, how to make decisions when it feels like we're maybe heading in the wrong direction and how we can lay hold of him in those situations. Uh, Yellowstone National Park is famous. It's famous for its rugged beauty. It's famous also for its hot springs and its uh, geysers. And on uh, one particular day, a, a, a couple of families decided they were going to take a uh, an extended trip to uh, to to the park. Uh, they had they had uh, gone out and uh, spent about eight hours uh, canoeing, and then they hiked uh, to uh, a particular uh, spot where they had um, these hot springs. Now, hot springs draw a lot of attention. They they draw people for their beauty, but they're also quite dangerous. Uh, the waters get up over two hundred degrees Celsius, and the area around them is uh, very fragile and needs to be protected. So what the parks do is they post signs everywhere. Uh, they put warnings in their pamphlets. They put guidelines on their website. But many people don't read the signs. As a pastor, this isn't a big surprise to me. On this particular day, the, uh, the, the, this, uh, uh, these two families had set out, and uh, they had, uh, ho were hoping to spend this wonderful day together at the park. Instead, uh, three individuals that were leading the party found themselves uh, in court. Uh, Eric Romriel, uh, Dallas and Eric uh, uh, Roberts were uh, forced to appear in court, and they were sentenced to two years probation. They were banned from the park. They were given sentences. They were given fines between $540 and $1,250. And two of them spent two nights in jail. Uh, their crime on this particular day was uh, boiling a, a couple of chickens whole in the hot springs. Uh, they, they had... Um, uh, had taken the, these chickens with them on the canoe trip. They had put them into a roasting bag and then into a burlap container, uh, a burlap bag that they then put into the water and, uh, and they thought this was going to be a good idea. Somewhere along the line, somebody must have had a sense, maybe this isn't right. Maybe we're doing something that maybe is, is kind of out of bounds. But it's fascinating to me 
that they not only did they go ahead with it anyway, that when they were, uh, in fact, confronted by the judge about their actions, uh, like, why did you do this? Why, why do you go to all of this trouble knowing that there are potential uh, consequences? And listen, listen how the, one of them responded. Uh, Romriel said uh, he saw the warning signs. But he said, the way I interpreted it was, don't be destructive. And I didn't feel like I was. And when he was questioned further, he became even more philosophical. He said, I view it as a question of when land use is appropriate and when it's abusive. My opinion was it was land use, but it wasn't land abuse. I mean, this is sounding like a great speech. But what he learned was that the judge was not really particularly interested in his interpretation. He wasn't interested in how he felt about how, what it might have meant and, or his, his opinions about land use and land abuse. He had disregarded the law and he would face the consequences for it. When I, when I think of the, the, uh, the disregard for all of the signs and all of the warnings. And when I think about the way he tried to justify his actions, and frankly, when I think about the consequences that there were in his life as uh, he took this course of action in, in surely disregard of some of the internal feelings that he must have had, I think that there are times in all of our lives where we do run through the same mental calculus, where we find ourselves in positions where it doesn't feel 100% right, but we're not sure, and we kind of want to, you know, it, it feels like eating spring roasted chicken would be better than raw greens, and it, it, we're tired, we're hungry, and we just do what feels right. And today we're talking about those kinds of situations where we are forced to make decisions when we're maybe not at our best, forced to make decisions where it doesn't feel quite right, and trying to find a way to navigate through those decisions in a way that would glorify God, would avoid some of the painful consequences that we can find ourselves in when we ignore his commands, and uh, find ourselves that with his help and his motivation as we do so. Uh, so I'd, I'd ask you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 45. Uh, I'm going to start by reading verses 25 to 28 in the Black Church Bibles under the rack in, on the rack under the seat in front of you. Uh, it's on page 37. Genesis 45, verse 20, 45, verse 25, page 37. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive I will go and see him before I die. This is the word of God. Now, the first principle that we get here in this passage is, if it feels so right, it could still be wrong. 
that when we are, are taught by scripture that we should be suspicious of our gut instincts and following our heart, and that often our heart is leading us in places that just feel good for the moment but lead to uh, more dangerous consequences down the road. If it feels so right, it could still be wrong. Now, as the scene opens, Jacob has been grieving for almost 22 years. His favorite son, his, his son Joseph, he believes has been killed by a wild animal, and it, it has undone him. And the brothers have gone to uh, Egypt. This, uh, his sons have, have gone off to Egypt to buy grain, and he's on edge because they've taken his youngest, Benjamin, along with them. He, he didn't want Benjamin to go. He, he avoided sending Benjamin, but it seemed like the only way, and he fears that Benjamin's life is in jeopardy. Now, those same sons of his are returning from Egypt, where they've gone to get grain, and as they arrive home, not only is Benjamin with them, and that's a great relief to, uh, to their father, but they're bringing news that somehow Joseph is still alive. And uh, hear what they announce in verse 26. Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. To Jacob, it feels like a cruel joke. It feels like they are, are, are lying to him because he knows that they've lied before, but why would they be lying now? What, what possible motivation could they have for treating him so cruelly? The text says his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. It's too much. He's stunned by the news. He's overwhelmed by his, his grief. He doesn't know why they are, are speaking to him like this. Nothing makes sense. Uh, but they continue to explain in verse 27, and it says, But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. You catch a little detail at the, the last half of the verse? They tell him all of the words of Joseph, but that isn't enough in and of itself to convince him. They, they've heard what's happened to him over these last couple decades, and that's good, but it's not until he hears about the Egyptian wagons that he is, he is on board with this plan. What is it with guys in their cars, right? It's like he, he's, he's heard the news, but the brothers have arrived with what looks like a motorcade of, of luxury SUVs in their, for their day, and he is like, We're, we can't get these models in Canaan. This is amazing. These are, are great wagons. But it's not actually the fact that he is going to just be riding one of these luxury vehicles that has Jacob excited, but the fact that this is confirmation that the story that the sons are telling him is in fact true. If, 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 if this story wasn't true, you're certainly not going to have these royal chariots showing up. Uh, this is confirmation to him that in fact his son is alive. That what he had believed was wrong. The grief is now replaced with joy. And in a rash decision, in a split decision, that's enough for him. He's going to go and meet his son. 
He's going to leave the promised land. He's going to head to Egypt. He's going to, to join in this reunion with him. And he is overcome with the excitement of that moment. It feels so right in this moment to him. Can't be wrong. Or, or can it? Jacob at this moment doesn't seem to care one way or the other, right? He, he is thinking only about his son. He's thinking only about the reunion. He's acting on impulse. He's going with his gut. He is feeling in the moment. This, this, is, uh, this, this will feel so, so good that he doesn't care about the consequences and doesn't really factor God into the equation. That's a dangerous way to live. In a survey done by the dating site ChristianMingle.com, the single professing Christians said only 11% of them said that they would be willing to wait until marriage to have sex. It's, it was kind of a self-reported functional atheism that if I want it badly enough, I don't care what God thinks, I'm going to do what I want. And I suspect that it is not just in, uh, in sexual areas that people are making that calculation, but in all of the other areas of life as well. That seems to be where Jacob is at in this moment. And so I think we need to ask ourselves a question, are we, are we factoring in God into those areas where we want it so bad, it feels so right? But is God a part of the equation? Are we looking to God and his word for our sense of what is right and what is wrong? Are, are, we, are, are we looking to, to what, what do the scriptures teach? And when we're not clear, are we going to other believers whom we respect, seeking their counsel, listening to, their, uh, to, to them to take us to the word of God? Do we do that when we make our decisions about our career, about our free time, even how we relate to the church, how we relate to one another? If we believe that there is a good and wise God who loves us, then surely Cutting God out of decisions and going in paths that reject his will bring upon us not only negative consequences, but we are forfeiting blessing. We are, are turning our back on what God would otherwise seek to do within us. Proverbs 14.12 warns, There is a way that seems right to a man, but it, its end is the way to death. Proverbs 16.2 puts it like this, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. Some of the wives here are saying, yeah, I've noticed that with men. Yeah, that, that has, seems to be a thing. But it says the Lord weighs the spirit. The, word, the verses are warning us to be suspicious of our gut instincts. They're warning us that, that what pops into your mind, what you feel in your heart, could in fact be leading you down paths that are, are dangerous and, and in uh, rejection of God's will. And we should be realistic about the things that we feel we have the capacity to justify. That our heart is, uh, has that, 
that, that sense to, I'm going to do this whether, I, whether uh, God says it or not, and we'll find a way to justify it, find a way to explain it. As Jacob headed for Egypt, I suspect that he began to think about some of these things. He began to think about a decision that was made right on the spot, impulsively, quickly, rashly. And he began to reflect on what he knew of God and his dealings with, uh, with, with humanity. I suspect that he looked back on, on to his grandfather Abraham and the fact that God had promised Abraham, among many things, he promised him land. He promised to send him to uh, a place, uh, the place Canaan, that would become known as the promised land. I think he probably thought back on what he knew about his, his grandfather's dealings and how in a similar famine, his grandfather had decided, there's famine here in Canaan. I'm going to head uh, to a different place. I'm going to go to Egypt where there's food. That move away from the promised land threatened his wife, threatened their marriage, and almost brought an end to the, to the line right there. I suspect that as he was making this journey, he also thought back to his father, Isaac, and reflected on how in another famine, similar to this one, at this time, God had directly warned him, knowing that this was likely on his mind, he said, don't go down to Egypt. Don't do it. And, and reflecting on that, I think he began to think, I'm not sure that I should just be impulsively making decisions based on my gut, based on what I feel like, based on how wonderful a reunion with my son would be. I think I should be including God in these decisions. And so as he begins to process these questions, fear, anxiety drive him to God. He decides, uh, as, he reaches, uh, as he reaches Beersheba, he decides to seek the Lord and to call upon the Lord. And it's with those, uh, with, with those thoughts in his mind, he then begins to, uh, to, to call upon the Lord. And I want to see what happens as he does. Uh, if you have your Bible still open, Genesis 46, verses 1 to 4. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. What I want you to see here is that only God's word confirms God's will. God doesn't come to him and say, hey, you don't need to worry about anything. Just, just go with your gut. Like, this is going to be an amazing reunion. Don't need to worry about anything. Instead, he gives him a clear revelation what was wrong for your father Isaac in that situation is now right. This is a part of my purpose for you. You can go to Egypt with freedom knowing that this is my plan. Only God's word confirms God's will. 
Now, Beersheba, to orient you, is southern Israel. It's only 50 kilometers from the Gaza Strip. Uh, in recent weeks, they have received uh, rocket fire from Gaza. Uh, this is a place that's in the news, but as, uh, as you are hearing this, uh, or as Jacob is thinking about Beersheba, this is not a potential place of tension with uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This is a place for him that is on the border of a bad decision. It, it is probably the farthest south that he has ever traveled. He knows that the next stop is Egypt. And when you find yourself, if you have been promised land, and you find yourself on the border of that land, about to leave that land, that's a good time to seek the Lord. And that's what he does. And, and when, when we are seeking the Lord, we, we are to be asking ourselves, are there any warnings in Scripture about this decision I'm about to make? Are there, are, are there any principles in Scripture that, that I need to, 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 to listen to and apply in this situation? Am, am, I just, am I just going through the motions, or are there, are there clear guidelines that, that I should be thinking of in this moment? And as we are thinking about what those might be, and maybe seeking counsel from others to, to help guide our decisions, we should be aware of our heart's capacity for justifying itself. We should remind ourselves that when we're hungry, we want chicken. We don't want vegetables. We, we, we are in those situations. Uh, we are going to justify our actions if it feels uh, important enough to us. Now, one of the hardest things about decisions is the uncertainty of them. There are consequences to our decisions one way or another. And as we struggle with decisions, it is often the unknowns that, that pose the greatest challenges. We know that Jacob's decision, Jacob didn't know this, but Jacob's decision would involve a 400-year stay for his descendants. We know that in, in this time, they will experience discrimination, they will experience slavery, attempts at genocide. This will be a monumental decision. And if Jacob had not sought the Lord, if he had just gone with his gut, if he had just headed to Egypt because, hey, I want to see my son, his descendants would probably be cursing him for hundreds of years. Instead, he, he, at the 11th hour, as he finds himself at the border, about to head into Egypt, he stops himself, seeks the Lord, raises up offerings, and he hears a clear revelation, this is my will for you and for your descendants. And in doing so, he will go forward with the conviction that God is with him, that God has uh, ordained this for him, and, and he can do so with a clear conscience, with uh, God's uh, leading and direction. Hear the hope that God gives him in verse 3. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Up until this point, he knew that God had promised to give him a land and to make him into a great nation. But the fact that he was going to do that work of making him into a great nation in Egypt, that was new information. That was a new part of the plan that he was not yet uh, aware of. 
Up until this point, Jacob was just going to see his son. He was just on a, on a journey for a pleasant reunion. Now he realizes it's going to be a lot more than that. And if it's going to be a lot more than that, then there are different questions that go through his mind. How will they cope? How will they deal with the people, with the language, with the customs of this land? What, what awaits them there? And many of you have made those kinds of journeys and find, found yourself in those kind of situations where uh, it's, I am looking forward to a situation where I'm going to be out of my element, facing new situations, new circumstances, a new language perhaps, and for the very first time. And to that, in that uh, uh, situation, with those circumstances here, how God reassures him in verse 4. He says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. I myself is a way of translating the emphasis. It's like, I will go down to Egypt. Me, it's, I, I'm the one that's going to do this. A and when you are facing a, a, an uncertain decision with lots of unknowns before you, that is exactly the place that you want to find yourself. You want to choose the place of God's presence. Choose the place of God's pleasure. Choose the place of God's blessing. We're going to face difficulties in life no matter what we do. But there's nothing like being in a hard situation and knowing that God has led you there, that God is with you there, and that God will bless you there. And... If you've ignored all the signs and you're boiling your chicken, it doesn't matter how nice it smells, how great you think it's going to taste. God's not in that. God won't bless that. And there are probably painful consequences waiting for you. Jacob did go down to Egypt and he did return. But he returned in a coffin. His descendants would go on to experience blessing in Egypt. The, the, the move there actually saved them. It saved uh, the, uh, the line that God had promised to preserve. But it would also bring great difficulty as well. They would eventually become slaves in this land. And so I think we need to ask, why did God take them there at all? Like, why do that, right? God could have just... Uh, sent them every, every year or so, go and do another run to Egypt. Hey, we've got these, these great you know, Egyptian wagons now. We can carry a lot of supplies. Why don't we just go there, buy some stuff? We can ride out the next year for however long this goes on. Why bother with Egypt at all? Does God really know what he's doing? Is God's plan good after all? And I think those are the kinds of questions that Jacob probably found himself asking. I think those are the kinds of questions that you and I find ourselves asking. Do you know what you're doing, God? This doesn't seem like it makes any sense. Can I trust you? And while God doesn't reveal all of his, his reasonings and all of his plans in our lives, he does give us insight into what he was doing in Jacob's life so that we can trust him in those situations when well, we don't know what he's doing. 
it doesn't, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. And we learn that we can trust him after all. Hear what God said to Jacob's grandfather Abraham in Genesis 15. He says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This passage actually explains some of God's strange leading in our lives. And so it's our third principle this morning. And the principle is this, exile often prepares us for the promised land. That when we first trust in Jesus, we imagine, I think the way this is going to work is that God will give us heaven on earth. We think that's how it should work. And so we expect God will make all of my circumstances heavenly, heaven sent. And there is a sense in which God does give us a taste of heaven on earth. And how he does that, how he promises that is through the Holy Spirit, a down payment on what we are to to later receive. But it is often through exile in in this earth, it is often through those times of testing that we find him preparing us for what's to come. It's not necessarily heaven now. It is an exile that we pass through to prepare us for the Holy Land, for for the Promised Land. Now, Abraham, as we looked at that passage, it didn't tell us what country this would take place in. He wasn't given details. He wasn't told, hey, this is going to be Egypt. He was told that his descendants would be 400 years in a foreign land where they would experience great affliction. In verse 16, he gives the reason for it. He says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And that's really important. Let me explain. What came to be known as the promised land, or originally Canaan, was a a, a land that was ruled by a, a people known as the Amorites, or the Canaanites. And the Amorites... Uh, were at, at this point in history a people whose culture was so evil that, and it was getting progressively more and more evil. It was on this downward, downward spiral marked by idolatry, prostitution, witchcraft, child sacrifice, and perversion. It was a place that God had great mercy on. He wanted to give them every chance to repent, and that's why there's such this long time. Why do you spend 400 years, Lord? Because you're so gracious, because you're so merciful, because you long for, for people to repent. You long to give every last opportunity for people to turn to you. And, and so while, while that was true, while God was giving that time, for the Israelites to have remained there would have been spiritual disaster. 
for them to have, uh, have lived in this land, to grow uh, the, the temptations to, uh, to mix with them, to join with them, to follow them in their sin as they got progressively more and more embedded, entrenched in their sins would have been disaster. Instead, what God does is he leads them to Egypt. He gives them a region called Goshen, which is uh, in the uh, northwestern part of, uh, of Egypt. It's bordered by the, the Nile on one side, the Mediterranean Sea on the, on the north, and it is a rich agricultural land. There, they would face discrimination. People would say, I don't want to eat with you. You kind of keep to yourself. But they would be protected. They would they would flourish as a, as a people over those 400 years. They'd be protected from the culture around them and particularly from the worsening evil that was, uh, that was spiraling out of control in Canaan. And even the difficulties that they would face would purify them. As they faced those difficulties, it was actually the slavery that they experienced was what God used to draw them to himself. It was only at that point that they called upon his name, that they looked to him and they called, up, called upon him. And so often that is what happens in our lives. God uses hardship to purify us, to draw us near to help us to see our need of him, our need to depend upon him. He brings us into situations where we have no resources to, to handle on our own, and so we can't help but call on him ourselves. That's what God did already in Jacob's life to some extent. He dealt with one of the issues in his life. Uh, Jacob, some of you know, means he grasps or he deceives and that, that lying, cheating uh, heart characteristic in, in Jacob was something that needed dealing with. And so he went into exile. He, he was chased uh, to Haran by his, uh, his brother Esau. And when he gets to Haran, he meets an uncle in Laban, someone who has... Uh, is a match for his lying and cheating ways. And for two decades, he is exposed to someone who is like a mirror to his heart. He sees in his uncle just how terrible and destructive uh, that kind of lying, cheating character, character can be. And it changes Jacob. And it is, in that moment, it is in that process, not only does he come to terms with his own sin, he comes to terms with his own God. He learns to call upon him. He learns to pray. He learns to lean in. It is often that way that God will work in our, in our lives through times of testing, through times of exile. Even Jesus went into exile to bring us to the promised land. Some of you will remember that in, in, in the Christmas story, particularly in Matthew's gospel, he goes to great lengths to remind us that, that Jesus had to flee to Egypt. It was a place of protection. It, it was away from the promised land, but it was in that place that God would protect him from a king who was intent on his destruction. Uh, some of you know, remember that right after his baptism, Je Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. 
And when he found himself in the, in the wilderness, he faced the same decision that our Yellowstone National Park canoers and hikers did when they were facing a long day and they were feeling very tired. They were feeling very hungry. He didn't, hadn't brought along any chickens in a burlap sack to boil, but Satan tempted, it with, with, tempted him with bread and it would have tasted so, so good. In that moment, he would, everything uh, circumstantially would have moved him to call out and take that bread uh, to, uh, to satisfy his hunger. But he listened to God's word and he declared with conviction, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the word of God strengthened him. It gave him clarity and conviction in a moment where uh, just, uh, just going with your gut would have led him into disaster. Jesus made that sacrifice not just for himself. He made that sacrifice for each one of us here. His act of obedience in that moment and his continued act of obedience throughout his life was the basis for him being able to offer his own life as a pure, holy substitute for sinners. Because he didn't eat the forbidden fruit, he could die and take the place of all of us who have. He could provide for our salvation. And so now, not only do we receive of his forgiveness, when we put our trust in him, we receive of his spirit that we might have the strength to respond to those temptations when, when they come. That we, we have the, the power of his spirit within us to say no to temptation when we are faced with it. And all who turn to him, while they may not find themselves in, immediately in heaven on earth, while they pass through exile, they will do so with the conviction that it is in God's will, in those times of testing, that we, he protects us, he purifies us, and he ultimately prepares us for all that is to come. So how does this passage relate to what you're feeling this morning? How does it relate to what you are dealing with uh, in your life today? Are you sitting in an area of compromise that you haven't given over to the Lord? Do you find yourself, as Jacob did, at the border of a really potentially bad decision? Stakes are high. And God just hasn't been factored into it. Hear the, hear the message of this passage when it reminds us not to go with our gut, not to just trust our feelings. We should be suspicious of our heart and its capacity to justify itself. Don't, don't get philosophical about God's commands. Don't go off in your dreaming up what your interpretation of this would be and somehow it's exact opposite of actually what it says. When we're willing to turn around, God's grace is there to receive us. So if you're in that moment, turn to him. 
Maybe you've already made the decision. Maybe you need to go back on that decision. God is there to help you pick up the pieces by his grace that we might go forward and walk in his will. Maybe some of you are boiling chickens in burlap bags because, hey, you just don't read signs. You don't read them. You can't answer temptation the way that Jesus did because you don't know what it is written. Because you don't read it. You're not exposing yourself to the word of God. Not reading, reflecting, remembering what he has given you for your strengthening, for your blessing, for your guidance. Purpose to make God's word central in your life. To, to make it your guide, to make time to expose yourself to his truth, that it might be your protection and your help in times of testing. And finally, if obedience to God has landed you in Egypt, if you're there, you're feeling the testing, you're wondering why it doesn't feel more like heaven. Don't be afraid. Know that it's there that God forges greatness. Know that it's there that God protects his people. God pre prepares his people. Know that it's there that God purifies his people. He's promised to be with you. He's promised to fulfill his purposes for you. And so look to him with that anticipation, with that expectation. You're not alone in that moment, in that place. God is with you. Let's look to him now in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, you know how often we fail. And you know how loud the temptations can be. So give us grace to, to listen Strengthen us by your word. Build our convictions as we build habits of reading, reflecting, and remembering. And Father, when life feels like exile, remind us often of your presence. Help us to look to you for your strength. Help us to cling to your promises and believe that you will indeed accomplish all of your good purposes in us. For we ask you in Jesus' name, amen.